Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. What would you do if you witnessed children crossing crocodile-infested waters just to get to school in Zambia? Or 12 children, 12 of them all sharing just one pencil in a small classroom in Tanzania? Or children who couldn't even go to school at all and instead are working under the hot Andy sun? Witnessing these real events moved my guest to action. Kate Curran, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for having me. Those experiences I shared with our listeners were absolutely defining moments in your life and propelled you to found School the World. What was your vision when you started the school? Well, we actually started many schools. When I began, I knew that I wanted to help the poorest children in the world. And I quickly gravitated toward an educational strategy. To be honest, though, a friend of a friend brought me to meet the mayor of Chichicatenango in rural Guatemala, and he started explaining their needs with schools, and I just looked at him and I said, okay, how about you pay for half and we pay for half? And he said, okay, and I said, okay, let's go. Show me. We was beginning to get dark, and he got in a car with us and drove us way up in this mountain, and it was amazing in the dark just to get out and see this school that was nothing but a tin shack. It had uh, nothing but tree stumps in it for kids to sit on, not even chairs or desks, and had one blackboard, no books, dirt floor. That was it. It was amazing. And starting the this first school and all these schools, the challenges, I can't even imagine just even what you've shared already. You're in another country, you're trying to get funding, you're trying to get support. That must have been overwhelming at times. Eventually became overwhelming. But in the beginning, I always tell people that if everybody could take a year off from work and travel around the world, the world would be a better place. Because I was just so inspired so grateful for all that I had been given and so high on life at that point that I truly believed anything was possible. And I had so much energy. The morning after I made my decision to do it, I woke up at six o'clock in the morning. I'd never been a morning person before. I used to set like three alarms. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning on my own, jumped out of bed, ready to go. It was not until we began, you know, implementation when you start running into the types of challenges that you run into in developing countries, the fact that you can't really control things, did I, you know, start to face those kinds of hurdles. I'm going to take people back, though, to before you started the school, because this was not your first career. You did want to start a nonprofit, but you thought, well, I should practice law for a while because that would be a practical approach. <laughs> and, right. and you did that. And then General Electric borrowed you for a while when someone went on maternity leave. They eventually hired you as their vice president of external affairs. You truly yeah. had a sterling legal career there. But the last two years were pretty rough for you for personal reasons, which created yet another defining moment in your life. Share with us what happened. My brother died unexpectedly, and the following year, both of my parents died. Mm. First my father and then my mother. My parents had contributed so much in their lives, and it, it was just so evident at the end of their lives, how remarkable that was, mm. and mm. what great lives they had led. My mother's last words literally were, I've had a great life. She actually lost three children. She had five 
others and raised all of us, like worked so hard all the time. My father was in politics, lived in pain her entire life. She'd had polio and had some physical ailments as a result, but mm. still would say I've had such a great life. Wow. And it was true. And I really started to question at that point what I was doing yeah. um, and why I was doing what I was doing and had I contributed enough and it's just how I wanted to be living my life. And I pretty quickly got to the answer, which was no. Yeah. And then I made the decision to leave. And that was when you took that sabbatical, which you thought was yes. initially only going to be a few months, but it took you on a journey to many different places. Talk us through a little bit of that. I started out in Argentina. I had always wanted to go to Argentina. I'd never traveled by myself, and I knew it was safe, and I knew it was inexpensive, and I thought, oh, I can afford to take a month off, and then I'll come back and figure it out. I went. It was so good for me. I mean, it was so mm. beautiful. I went to Patagonia. I spent like 10 days in Patagonia. I spent time in Salta and the north and the Andes, and I said, I have to stay. <laughs> I have to stay longer. So I called you know, my siblings at home and said, I'm staying. I'll be home a couple of weeks later. <laughs> and just fell in love with it. And I met the most extraordinary people there in Patagonia. I met these grandparents who were on one motorcycle from Buenos Aires all the way down to Ushuaia, which is the jumping off point for Antarctica. You know, it's the type of place that explorers go. So I met the funnest, most interesting people there. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to just keep going. I went home for a few weeks. I started taking some classes and then I said, oh, I'm going to go to Europe now. I'm going to go to Paris and Normandy. Again, in Normandy, I was just so struck. If you've never visited the, the American cemetery there, I would highly recommend it. It's incredibly moving and you think about all that um, people have sacrificed for others. Then I went home from there and I thought, oh gosh, now I want to go to Africa. I've always wanted to go. I had wanted to do the Peace Corps, but I didn't. You just decided, kept traveling okay. and traveling <laughs> yeah, and traveling. And at some point I said, that's it. I'm taking the whole year. I'm taking at least this whole year and I'm not going to worry about a thing. I'm just going to travel and do what I want to do. That was a very brave thing to do. Not everybody would have the courage, perhaps even let alone the resources to be able to do that. And yet you did it. I was really just so inspired with more and more with each trip. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, and I, I know I had to have some end that I would eventually have to go back to work. But to tell you the truth, I ended up, you know, I ended up in, when I started School of the World, just giving up so much. I really didn't end up having a salary for four years. I had a great townhouse on the water. I gave that up. I moved in with my sister and my parents' house. We still had that. I stopped shopping and... You changed I your did. life. I really dramatically, dramatically changed. Wow. And then you, yeah. you come back and you, you start the school and you build one at a time and it truly does take a village. And I, I'm guessing it we does. can all agree that solving poverty is extremely complex. From your personal perspective of everything that you've witnessed in founding the school, why is it so hard to solve poverty? I think it's hard for a number of reasons. We want things to happen quickly. We think everything should be in our minds on a fast timetable. And that's not really how it works. The people that are living in extreme poverty are struggling to survive. 
Mm. And they are on their own timetable. And you have to learn to adapt to that and be patient and work with them patiently. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is people who are extremely poor know they're extremely poor. Okay. And the self-esteem is extremely low. I think that empowerment is critically important to any kind of poverty-solving work. And that takes a long time. Changing behaviors takes a long time, changing culture, but I've seen it work. When it does happen, amazing things are possible. You know, one of the earliest schools we started in, the, the women were initially not even allowed to come to the meetings. Then they were, you know, after a long process, lots of dialogue, they were allowed to come only once a month. And in the beginning, they were afraid to even speak to us. They were so timid. And eventually, after maybe six months, they finally told us that the school director had a drinking problem and sometimes would not show up for a week at a time. And his his local supervisor for the Ministry of Education was his father. And so they had given up hope. He said, you can and must change the situation and went through kind of a long process of empowering these women who eventually went to the department level, higher up in the government, and insisted, demanded that they change the school director. Mm. And the father came and tried to intimidate them, and they stood up to him, and they said, no, we will not. We want a new school director. That eventually did happen, and when I went back there two years later with the board, you know, someone asked the women, um, how's it going? How are the teachers now? And first of all, the women were running everything. The school was full of girls who were jumping up and down in classroom, raising their hands, asking questions. Someone said, how, you know, how are the teachers? And the women said, oh, great. We had two others that we didn't like, but we just got rid of them. Wow. You Gosh, have to empower totally. them. Yeah. Totally. And the dropout rate there was greater than 50% when we began. Hmm. And today it is down to 3%. That's astonishing. Well, you have tremendous patience. I will say that much, Kate. But (laughs) this is what you've accomplished. School of the World is now in four countries, United States, Guatemala, Honduras, and your most recent one is Panama. You have built 107 schools. You've stocked more than 400 classroom libraries. You've empowered these parents that you talked about, more than 6,000 of them as sort of, you call them first educators. And you have trained almost 400 teachers. And all of that combined, I love this, you have served 10,485 children. Congratulations. That is an accomplishment. Did you imagine that this is what would happen many years ago? No. (laughs) I wish I could say I did. I would love to be able to say I did, but I did not. Again, it took a lot of time um, to begin to see the true impact. You know, people used to say in the beginning, you must feel so proud, you must so good. And I used to think, no, not really. Not until I not see yet, real change. Not yet. Not yet. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And then you start to see it and you're like, oh my gosh, really. It's amazing. And then you want more. Exactly. So today we're actually starting at early childhood and we are continuing through at least ninth grade. Oh, fantastic. In every community. Again, we continue to be grassroots, community driven, but we're trying to empower parents and communities around education, starting in early childhood and continuing through at least ninth grade. 
I'm curious because it's been 11 years now since you first launched School of the World. Have you been able to follow any of the students to where they are now and how their lives were changed as a result? I have, actually. There are several students that I have followed. Thinking of three right off the top of my head. One I met at one of our very first schools when he was in kindergarten. He was absolutely adorable. We called him the local mayor. And it was so interesting. I followed him for years. I went to his graduation from primary school. But we had said to him before he graduated, are you you going to continue school? And he said, no. We asked the teachers, why isn't he going to continue? Because I felt that his parents possibly had some resources. Many of the children are malnourished in these communities, and he clearly was not. He was actually a little chubby. (laughs) So the parents initially said, well, can you help us? And we said, no, there are other children that need that help more. The parents said, okay, we'll send him. And the father, who I'd never met, he worked in the Capitol, came to the graduation and brought a present for me, you know, to thank me for, you know, believing in his son. His son is not only continued into middle school, but now is in upper secondary school, wants to study the environment. Another girl, her family could not afford for her to continue her education past primary school. This is before we started giving scholarships. And so at 12 years old, she got on a bus with a friend and went to Guatemala City to find work. And she found work and they made tacos. She slept in the kitchen. She worked from five in the morning until nine o'clock at night. And they paid her $5 a day. Oh my gosh. And she was sending money home to help her family. Mm. She was 12. And we started giving scholarships and we went to find her. And that's how we found out that she had left and gone to city and we said to the parents, can we bring her back? They said, yes, yes. We brought her back. We gave her a scholarship. Then on her own, after finishing middle school, went to, found a way to continue into upper secondary because we were not doing scholarships at that point. She is now in upper secondary and we are supporting with scholarships her younger siblings. Mm. And her dreams we watched get bigger and bigger with like each year of education. That's what you see. That's what you see. You can just get them, you know, to that next level. Well, you talk about these scholarships and I wanted to ask you, how can people help you in your efforts? Because this is extraordinary work and you're seeing firsthand the change and the empowerment and the opening up of their eyes of what's possible in the world and their dreams get bigger. So how can people help you in, in this effort? First and foremost, obviously, what's most helpful is to make financial contributions, which can be done on our website, schoolotheworld.org, school.world.org. Scholarships in particular for middle school, we have scholarships that are small for what we consider them the smaller ones because for kids who have a middle school in their communities but can't afford the school supplies, the uniform, the registration fee, and some support to go to an internet cafe to do homework. Mm. Those run about $300 a year. Scholarships for girls who do not have access to a middle school nearby and would have to walk in areas that are unsafe, so we pay for their transportation as well, and those are $1,000 a year. We're just talking a couple dollars a day here when you think about it. Yes. You know? Yes, and we, of course match those students with the funder and we provide photographs and biographies and Mm. reports 
and how they're doing in school. Right now, we're also doing a lot of empowerment for those students, particularly for girls who are at risk of early marriage and abuse and a number of other problems during periods of crises like COVID. Any contribution, first of all, we have a monthly program where people give $5 a month that pays for one book a month for a child. And right now we're trying to get books into the homes because the schools are all closed. Another thing that we can't do right now, but we will be doing again as soon as COVID, as soon as we have some relief with the vaccine, which is service trips for high school students and corporate service trips, actually. High school students, we've taken nearly a 1,000 since 2013 when we started that program. Those kids raised the money. Every 25 kids raises enough money for a school building and a playground, and then they travel and spend the whole week in the community finishing the build, working alongside the parents and the children. Uh, And about 30% of those teenagers have come back for second and third year trips. That's how much they love it. It's an amazing program. And it takes time to organize those. So if you start working on it now, maybe you'll have it ready (laughs) for post-COVID. And then just following us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and Instagram. Help us build our following there helps as well. Spread the word. It does. In any way. You mentioned earlier about your mother's last words of I've had a great life and your father's lifelong commitment to public service, which both of them inspired you to sort of begin that journey of defining your life and and a great life. And it took you across four continents. As you sit here today, what is your definition now of a great life or your best life? I do really, really believe that the best life is one that is lived in service of other people. Fantastic. That is to me, truly the best life and the way to live a great life. Well, you were a change agent at GE. You've been a change agent as the founder of the School of the World. You have forever touched so many lives. Kate, thank you for your great work, and thank you for sharing your story with all of us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and for helping me share the story of School of the World. And I want to give that website out one more time. It is schoolttheworld.org. So schoolttheworld.org. You can find out more about Kate's efforts and how you can support that. And thank you all for joining me for this podcast. I invite you to listen to all of my episodes with great guests who are creating amazing next chapters for themselves, living their best life, and showing us we can all do it too. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.